Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Imagine what it would be like to experience more clarity, connection, possibility, and skill in your everyday life and relationships. Imagine feeling at home with yourself and your relationships, living and acting from your most preferred values and intentions. Imagine getting triggered, but knowing how to respond instead of react. Imagine feeling at ease and even empowered by your painful past, no longer being overwhelmed or overpowered by painful stories, outdated beliefs, or critical voices that limit your life. These are the words of this episode's guest, Jessica Fern. Jessica is a psychotherapist, public speaker, and trauma and relationship expert. In her international private practice, Jessica works with individuals, couples, and people in multiple partner relationships who no longer want to be limited by their reactive patterns, cultural conditioning, insecure attachment styles, and past traumas, helping them to embody new possibilities in life and love. In her best-selling book, Polysecure, Attachment, Trauma, and Consensual Non-Monogamy, Jessica breaks new ground by putting together attachment theory, trauma, and polyamory into one cohesive body of work. Her insights on attachment styles and how to heal our relationship with ourselves and others are profoundly inspiring, not only for those amongst us who choose consensual non-monogamy as their way to love, but also for those among us who are most comfortable in monogamous relationships. After all, everything is about love its presence or its absence. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome on the Superhumanized podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. In the opening of your book, Polysecure, Attachment, Trauma, and Consensual Non-Monogamy, you said something that really touched me and it resonated deeply with me. Um, you wrote, and I'm quoting here, I'm writing this book because I believe in love. And you also said, in many ways, my life is centered in not just believing in love, but in being love. Can you share about this sentiment with us? Yes. Yeah, I think it's been a huge part of my own healing journey, my own awakening journey, my spiritual journey, or sometimes I call spirituality is just becoming more and more human, you know, is becoming more heart centered than head centered. <laughs> mm. And so the importance of, and seeing how the traumas I went through put all of this guarding around my heart. And that's what was most painful as I healed was 
not so much what I went through, but feeling the the ways I was disconnected from myself, right? The ways I now had these guards that weren't letting love in and out, you know? So, so much of my own process has been to really center in love and, and what does that create? Whether it's, you know, with a stranger or my son or a lover or my pet, you know? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, or my clients. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you just uh, mentioned it, you know, pain and trauma. You became a healer uh, also because of your own experience of pain and trauma. What was your path to becoming a psychotherapist? Yeah, it was pretty circuitous. Um, you know, I studied psychology in undergrad and then I started a counseling program, um, but didn't finish it because it wasn't the right fit and did an international conflict resolution program where I got a lot of training in mediation and interpersonal conflict, which really serves me well. (laughs) And then it was sort of through doing this um, international research in Rwanda on genocide studies that brought me back to really wanting to work with individuals, with couples, with families. Yeah, so, and that sort of led me back to therapy. Yes. And yeah. you, you also take reference in your book to your own upbringing mm-hmm. and uh, your experience with, you know, I, I think all kinds of dysfunction, yeah. and how that formed you, uh, just so our audience also has part of your own personal backstory. Um, would you share with us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Um And my parents were very young. And as they like to joke, they grew up with me, which is a cute joke, but not great experience as a child, (laughs) but I didn't have adults who were my caretakers. Um, And my dad, um, he was addicted to drugs and to alcohol and wasn't able to be present in my life um, for most of my early years. And my mom was really looking for Prince Charming. So she was married several times. loved me, but was very distracted, you know, by relationships, by other men. And so wasn't always able to fully be there. And then of course, you know, in addiction, in addition, there was some abusive step parents. There was, you know, my parents' traumas, intergenerational traumas, just, yeah, all of it in the mix. Yes. And it's so, you know, interesting how our experiences they influence pretty much everything in our lives until we become aware of them and are able to reframe and to heal Uh, what I really love about your book is that it's the first that I'm aware of that puts together polyamory attachment and trauma into one cohesive body of work yeah and to give those in the audience who are not that familiar with the term or who may need a refresh, can you explain what attachment theory is? And also after, tell us about what the latest science on attachment theory is. Yeah. So attachment theory was, the theory was created by John Bowlby and then it was his partnership with Mary Ainsworth that really she did the research in the lab on it. But, um, and we can talk for hours about it, right? But the basic premise is that as humans were born with actually an attachment system that wires us to want and need connection. We need healthy connection for our actual biological development and our psychological development. Mm 
And we need caretakers that are attuned, that are available, that are responsive. And when we get that, we feel safe with them. We feel safe within ourselves. And then we feel safe to explore and be in the world, which is huge. Right? Um, and those early experiences really create this self and other and world blueprints that we go on to live. Right. But more than half the time for reasons that are not always to blame for our parents. Right. It can be societal, cultural, situational factors at play. Our parents aren't able to be responsive, attuned and available in the way our nervous system actually needs, you know. And so when that happens, we'll have insecure attachment. And then that takes a few different forms, right? So one version is where we kind of shut down our attachment system into what's called withdrawn or dismissive or avoidance style. Um, another version is we get sort of an hyperactive attachment system that gets really preoccupied and has a lot of anxiety and is hyper-focused on our parents or our partners as adults, or what's called disorganized or with fearful withdrawn, where we kind of vacillate between those two extremes back and forth. And that's usually when there's been more complex, ongoing, overt trauma in someone's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the research on attachment has wonderful things typically to say about how do we deal with these insecure attachments? They are healable, which is amazing. Thank goodness. <laughs> we can have an insecure history or past or as an adult go through a very traumatic relationship that creates an insecure attachment style and we can still earn our secure attachment again. So that's one of the I think most important things I always want people to hear is these aren't rigid styles that you're stuck in. You often feel more than one, um, even if you might tend to see yourself in more than in one more than the others. They can change from partner to partner, but really you can earn your secure attachment. Mm. But you know, the point of my book was to say, yeah, but so much of the research is only done on monogamous couples. Um, mostly straight couples, but there is extension into same-sex couples at least, you know, but it's all, it assumes monogamy and has a way of pathologizing people who are not doing monogamy. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And this is also what I found so extraordinary and outstanding about your book. And I think what might also be uh, helpful and interesting for our listeners is if you would also, again, here, share a little bit more about your personal history. Uh, you mentioned in the book that uh, reading the book Sex at Dawn, the prehistoric yeah. origins of modern sexuality was kind of a personal awakening for you. How did you actually come to practice consensual non-monogamy? What was your first experience or interaction? Yeah. So, I mean, my first experiences were in adolescence, actually. There just wasn't the word for it, right? Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, I wasn't straight. So even as simple as just, you know, uh, friends all getting drunk and kissing each other at a party, you know, but there was many ways beyond that emotional triad that I was in for a while, but didn't realize that's what it was. And, and other forms of non-monogamy, it was just sort of what we did. Right. Um, but then I did, you know, air quotes, settle down into a monogamous marriage. And so it was, it was reading sex at dawn that I was just like, Oh, this is me, you know, 
like this so deeply resonates, not just with something I want to like try out like a certain diet, you know, or a a certain philosophy, like this actually feels so true to me that, um, that, yeah, I can love multiple people and, and that just resonated so deeply. Yeah. Mm. And you also address the issue of whether people are born polyamorous or Mm -hmm. whether it's a lifestyle choice. What is your take on that? My take is it's both, you know, I mean, I hear thousands now of hours of people describing their non-monogamy experience and they're, so I see it on a spectrum, right? Not a clear binary. Um, And I hear people on one end of that spectrum who really describe this is who they are. They don't feel like it's a choice they're making. It just feels like how they're wired. I hear people on the other end of that describe monogamy as that way for them, right? They just, this is how they feel wired. They can't imagine more than one person at a time. And and it just doesn't even occur to them, right? And then there's a lot of people. So the people on that end, you could say sort of, they they describe it as an orientation, you know, mm-hmm. and then there's all these people in the middle who are curious or they go through phases or they say, this is philosophically what I believe. I don't believe in the colonization of women or romance of the possession of love, of owning another person, you know, and um, I don't want to participate in that. Right. And so they want to, you know, um, do non-monogamy. And then there's so many ways to do it. So many people find that they just don't feel sexually monogamous, but they might feel very monoromantic mm-hmm. and people feel the other way. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it is so important to actually uh, talk about all the different ways of mm-hmm. how people can love and none is not one is better than the other. If you are wired in a way that monogamy is like the ultimate bliss for you, that is beautiful go for it. If you are polyamorous and you have the capacity to love and connect, you know, emotionally, sexually, intellectually to multiple partners at a time, that is so beautiful. Go for it. If you just want the freedom or need the freedom of sexually connecting with multiple people, but romantically only with one partner, that's your way of expressing love and desire. And um, this is also something, you know, you write about, uh, you know, the cultural conditioning we uh, all of us have been and are exposed to. You write that romantic relationships in Western society are uh, very fraught with prescriptions and restrictions that inhibit non-traditional expressions of love and that many of us suffer greatly from this. Uh, Let's talk about the cultural and psychological models of love that we are prescribed and that we just accept as a given and as normal. What are they? Right. And it's funny because they weren't always a given, like they feel so strong now, right? but a lot of these concepts are like only within the last hundred years or something. Right. But you, you help me. Right. So, I mean, we have this concept that it's, it's one love for life mm-hmm. that your love meets all of your needs. If they don't, it's a problem. It's a deficiency with you or with them. Right. Um, that you go, your partner completes you. That's another sort of deficiency model of self, right? (laughs) That you're half a being until you meet your love. 
and that any desire for anything else is such a problem, right? Which is so funny because you say, well, the statistics show that the people who reveal cheating, so even the people that are saying they're monogamous, most of them are not actually practicing monogamy. <laughs> right. And then cheating is seen as the normal thing to do. Yeah. Um, or being in a serial monogamist, so to speak. And, you know, there's yeah. people who truly thrive on that. That's wonderful. Uh, but a lot of people do it because it seems to be the only option for them. And then yeah. they actually discard a relationship, even though they might still feel love and attachment. But since they don't think that it's a possibility to love the partner they're already with and then the new partner they may have fallen in love with, they just, you know, separate from one and go with the other. And I think there's a lot of heartbreak yeah. and a lot of, you know, psychological trauma that results that's not necessary. Uh, this operating from a sense of lack instead of a sense of abundance that, uh, you know, gets, uh, we see it in, you know, nasty breakups. We see it in the skyrocketing divorce rates. Also what you just explained, you know, this expectation that this one person needs to be everything for us. And if not, something's wrong with them or something's wrong with us. And this, this, yeah, this, this sense that's instilled in us that we are not complete unless we are with another. Because again, there might be people who are perfectly okay and all right being alone. And yeah. there are also people, you know, if you speak of people who um, define themselves as asexual, they're not interested in sex. They may still be very interested in romantic and yeah. emotional intellectual attachment with a partner. So there's many, many different ways of being in this world and of needing connection. And I just think as a society, we would be so much better off if we allow, truly allow for the freedom of choosing with respect and with compassion and with love for each other. So yeah. that being said, and this is really the wonderful thing about your book is that you bring together all these different things, uh, you know, like polyamory and attachment theory and trauma. Um, it is ex especially complex when you are in a polyamorous relationship, you know, the, our attachment styles. And you've also described that when you have more than one partner, that your attachment style with each of them may be also very different. So our attachment style also depends on our partners, right? It does. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It can be very different. We might, you know, um, I'm thinking of someone I was just working with who historically, they always were the more dismissive, withdrawn, avoidant partner, and their partner was always wanting more from them. And then they got together with someone who was a little bit more distancing and suddenly she was like, Oh, I'm so anxious. I'm preoccupied. Like I've never been in this style before, you know, and it was really a surprise. Right. And I mean, she's like late forties, right. She's <laughs> so it was great for her to, you know, have that to experience in many ways and her working on the ways of being more secure. Yeah. And even within the same relationship, you know, it, it can take, two years before our real attachment styles start to show up. 
Um, I think we have like an initial presentation. And then as we settle into long term, some of the different patterns show up and we might find that we even shift with the same person. (laughs) Um, And so you mentioned before the different attachment styles, and maybe we can go into a little more detail how the effects of disruptions of attachment that we may have experienced with our parents or or different situations in life and with society, um, the effects on our psyche and ability to give and receive love. Can you give us some very specific examples, please? Yeah, like of what creates some of these styles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for the withdrawn, avoidant, dismissive, you know, usually in childhood would be someone whose parents might have just literally not been there. I have no one who's taking care of me. There's, you know, overt neglect. But sometimes and often there are parents that are near there, they are meeting the physical needs. Sometimes the physical needs are met in abundance, but the emotional attunement is not there. Mm-hmm. Right? Of of you know tuning into the child's interior life in reality and their feelings being allowed and welcome. You know that they feel like they have that safe haven where someone's really nurturing them on that emotional level. So they might get feel rejected by a parent emotionally or have parents that might be very strict or very like performance focused. Like you are, you know, it's what you do that matters, whether it's the grades or the chores or the sports or the medals that you get, right? Or the physical appearance, right? You look a certain way, then that's what matters. Um, and so for whatever reason, the child learns oh, I don't, I can't really depend on anyone here emotionally. So I need to become more self-reliant. In my case, that came from like, there's no adults in the room. (laughs) They're they're biologically adults, but they're not psychologically adults. So I have to, you know, I can really only depend on myself here. And so there's this, in one way, it can be a developmental leap of I have to become an adult sooner than I am. am. And there's also a developmental stunting that happens, right? It's sort of both ways. And this person will tend to, as an adult, they do well usually in their work, right? They can get things done. They're usually very competent. Um, And everyone is sort of, even if they want connection and intimacy, it's sort of to a point, like you're held at arm's length, you know, or if things get too intense, then I withdraw. If I'm having feelings, I withdraw. If you're having feelings, I want to withdraw, right? Or minimize and dismiss, right? I mean, there's so much awareness now of like gaslighting and it's not that someone is intentionally doing that, but it's sort of their strategy to like shut down the intensity, you know? So you'll see those kind of patterns. Right. And I mean, I think it's also uh, tied to our uh, fight or, you know, fight, flight, freeze or fawn. Exactly. These reactions to a stressful situation. And um, yeah. And so getting back to your book, usually, you know, usually people talk about attachment styles and thank you for giving this, these really great examples. So usually they talk about these attachment styles in monogamous relationships and how does it change when it comes to consensual non-monogamy and why is attachment style so important for people who practice consensual non-monogamy? Yeah. So those are two, right. Really important questions. Um, 
how it changes, I mean, in some ways we still have, I think the same styles is what I see, but what changes is that you're intentionally forging more than one attachment bond. So you might be simultaneously experiencing different attachment styles or even phases in a relationship, right? I'm in a new relationship with this person that has one attachment experience. I have five to 10 years with this person. That's a totally different attachment experience. So there's just a lot going on at once, right? And that can be a surprise, you know, and often what happens when someone has been monogamous and they open up, if they've opened up with a partner, it will, it can expose, oh, our attachment might not have been as secure as we thought, right? And a lot gets exposed around that relationship. Or sometimes, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't even, like monogamy was a buffer for my own insecure history, right? Because polyamory or non-monogamy um, is, you know, theoretically less secure, right? That's debatable, right? Obstensibly less secure because, you know, monogamy has all those structural things that people rely on for their security and you don't have all those stru- same structural things. So people can feel all this insecurity suddenly, mm-hmm. right? From the opening up process. But what I see again and again is it becomes this fantastic opportunity of people realize, oh, I don't want to rely on the structure of something to feel secure. I want to feel secure internally, Mm. right? Not external factors of whether or not we're married or, you know, what our status is on an app, you know, (laughs) like that's not where I should get my security. I should get it from inside myself and then move towards people from that place. You know, I think this is also such a tremendous opportunity for people who are experiencing this and and taking this journey on in their lives for growth. Because I think whether you are monogamous or polyamorous or any other way that you choose to describe yourself and Mm -hmm. live, it comes down to, you know, do we live from our deepest truth? Do we live from the inside out? Or do we get security in a sense of self from the outside in? And if it's from the outside in, it will never be stable and secure. And I mean, I certainly am still working on on it. Uh, I do, however, see a huge difference. You know, I'm 45 now. If I look back at my early 20s and how dependent I was on the outside world, to tell me who I am, uh, yes. to tell me whether I was worthy or not. I just send so much love to this young woman of back then. <laughs> and it's such a light years of difference. And I think this is truly one of the great uh, uh, labors of love or to speak how the great alchemist put it, the great work in our life yeah. to transmute, to transform our inner selves into knowing that we're worthy, into knowing that we are safe and we are loved and that it comes from a source deep within us and that it's not attached to a source outside of us. Exactly. Exactly. Couldn't say it any better. Right. It doesn't mean we don't get inspiration from outside or needs met from other people. Like, of course, but the distinction I make is we don't source our worthiness, our happiness from other people. Right. They, They can fill it up some, but they can't be the source of it. Yes. And you also um, say very clearly that 
when you have a secure attachment style that you feel comfortable also to depend on others. You feel comfortable that others depend on you. Uh, you feel comfortable from going being with someone to being separate. Let's say if your partner travels or is at work, and then you go from being comfortable from being separate to being together again. And that's just exactly. a beautiful flow that feels very balanced. Yeah, exactly. Right. Things like needs are not a bad word. Yes. <laughs> right. Or even, you know, it's interdependency, but dependency even isn't necessarily a bad word. It's not codependency. Because yes. right? we have all these fears of being too needy or too codependent. And with real secure attachment style, it's like, no, it's not that at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And do attachment styles actually also apply to connections? Uh, like, you know, friends with benefits, one night stands or hookups? Yeah, so we can, those, those connections, like our attachment style is can inform those connections. Absolutely. How we're showing up in those connections, sometimes even why we're pursuing those connections can all be um, related to our attachment style. Absolutely. But I want to be very clear. If someone's pursuing friends with benefits or one night stands, it doesn't mean they have an insecure attachment style, mm -hmm. right? But yes, to some people with an insecure style do those things as a way of feeling better, that happens too. Yeah. So it's sort of like, where's the intention for that behavior versus, you know, problematizing that behavior. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And also whether you engage, uh, and that behavior with respect and transparency and out of a fullness of your being and not out of fear. I think that makes all the difference. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in your book, you talk about the heart concept yes. of attaching to our partners. What does the acronym heart stand for, Jessica? Yeah, so HEARTS was the acronym I came up with was sort of like, here's some of the how-to, like here's how you create or cultivate secure attachments with the people that you're both consenting. We want to be attachment-based partners. And the key for me was to not infuse the monogamy in there, right? Um, how do we do this in a non-monogamous context? The feedback I'm getting though is so many people feel like it's valuable for an exclusive context as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so H is for here, the importance of being present with our partners. E is express delight, which isn't just words of affirmation. It's really this way that exactly what it says, we express delight in our partner's beingness, yeah. right? Not their doingness, but their beingness and express doesn't have to be verbal. You know, it just can be the look, the way we touch, you know, the way um, all the different ways we can express ourselves to someone, right? Verbal and nonverbal. Um, A is attunement, you know, the way that we tune in and are curious and interested in our partner's internal world, right? What's going on? How is your day? What are your thoughts on that? You know, how are you feeling, right? And especially this is hard in conflict with a partner, right? To stay tuned into them, and realize I can tune into you. That doesn't mean I have to agree with you, right? We don't have to agree with our partner's perspective, but what a beautiful gift to be able to step into their perspective to understand their experience, even if it's different than ours. Hmm. 
The R is rituals and routines. So this is sort of, you know, the everyday mundane, you know, what are the little things, the rituals and routines we do together that are meaningful to us? The way we say good morning or good night, the way we reconnect when we've been apart, you know, and the way we say goodbye, what are the bigger rituals and routines that we take on in this partnership, whether it is sort of rites of passage or ceremonies that we do together, acknowledgements, things like that. And then the T is turning towards after conflict. So really the importance of conflict management skills, but not just the skills itself, the attitude, right? The like, I want to repair with you, right? How can I turn towards you when we're having difficulty, misunderstandings, disagreements versus become competitive, combative, you know, and turn away. And then the S is secure attachment with self, which applies the whole heart to your relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the hearts. It's it is so beautiful, and uh, I I love that it encompasses all the things from how we're present, you know, to the attuning, to also you know the rituals, basically also the the intimate uh, practices or sense of a kind of a structure that's woven through our individual uh, relationships. And when we talk about structurals in another sense, you mentioned it before, you know, the certain structure that's offered, for example, in monogamous relationships. Um, Structure, of course, is there's a structure in all types of relationships. And um, I have actually read um, uh, that you've said in in a previous interview, you've actually said that there's some people who rely more on the structure of a relationship versus relying on the quality of the connection. Can you explain that, please, Jessica? Yes, exactly. Um, so the structure would be the fact that we're married, the fact that we own things together or have children or have shared finances, right? And I'm not poo-pooing any of those things. I'm pro all of those things. The distinction I make though is please don't rely on those things for your sense of secure experience, right? So we rely on that versus saying, well, what's my actual emotional experience with this person? Are we doing the hearts? You know, do I feel emotionally safe? Can I turn towards this person? Do I feel supported and encouraged by this person? And am I doing the same? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we see this in a lot of um tradition, more traditional marriages where the structure was what was most important, you know, the fact of having a home or a family or a marriage, but the experience with your actual spouse might have not been of the greatest quality sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, feeling like I matter and I'm valued and we're in that expression of connection and love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I find that when we really focus on this relational experience of the expression of connection and love, the structure that we need will show it, reveal itself. And it, it might still be important, but it's not the only thing. You know, there isn't this urgency, like, let's get married or else. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so beautiful, you know, to focus on the expression of love and, and the connection versus structure. I feel that so many of us are still pressured 
yeah. by structure, you know, structure, you, especially if you look at, uh, you know, I'm, I'm German born and I've lived for the U.S. now uh, continually for close to 18 years. I've lived in the U.S. prior, uh, but so I know, and I've grown up in a lot of different parts of the world, uh, but I've experienced different ways of living and re expressing relationships and something that I find interesting in the U.S., and especially if you um, go to some of the states that uh, lean a little more to the, or a lot more to the conservative, that there's still a, a lot of pressure with regard to structure. Like at a certain age, you're supposed to be supposed married. Supposed to be married, yeah. And if you're not married, then easily the feeling that something may be wrong with you may creep into you. Yeah. And um, it's, uh, I think it's so freeing to really focus on the quality of the connection that you have, the love that you have. And so many people hold on to relationships where they are actually not fulfilled in that way, but the structure looks good to, it looks good to the neighbors. The structure looks good, but they yeah, may. Exactly. Right. There's a lot of people that are in what you would start to say, this is actually an abusive dynamic, <laughs> an imbalanced dynamic, right? There's verbal, emotional, physical abuse, there's cheating, but we have the structure, you know, so people aren't treating each other very well, but they've mm -hmm. got the structure at play, you know, and of course, for people listening, you can have both, right? There's many people who have chosen the structure and they're treating each other wonderfully and they're happy. Why do you think um, in certain parts of society we place so much more value on structure rather than the essence? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and I'm not a historian, but I feel like that's sort of the looking at the history of the evolution of marriage. It wasn't for romance and love. Mm -hmm. That's a newer concept, right? That's been infused to it. It initially was for the structure. Right. It was families merging each, with each other. It was for survival in so many ways, you know, whether that's physical survival of taking care of the realities of human existence or of sort of the survival of status, you know, and who you marry. So, yeah, I think it has it comes from, you know, hundreds, thousands of years of that. <laughs> yes. And uh, you touch upon something that's really important on a biological level survival you know survival in in many different ways because survival also depends on being accepted by the tribe because if the tribe doesn't accept you and what you do you might be expulsed from the tribe and of course your likelihood of surviving in the wild is greatly <laughs> diminished and somehow exactly. we still carry this within us yeah, uh, exactly. you yeah and Jessica, you actually say that there is a difference between a secure connection with your partner and having a secure attached relationship. Can you explain that to us, please? Yeah, I think in the book, I was making a distinction between maybe different people. But I think what you're bringing up, it can happen within the same relationship, too. You know, in the book, I make the distinction of we can have secure connections. Those can be in this case, let's say lovers that we are very loving and connected with, but maybe they're not a part of our everyday life, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and it doesn't mean because there might be more distance with that person, actual physical distance, or just how much time and investment we have with them. That doesn't mean it's not a secure connection, 
You know, I mean, we all have that friend that we could not talk to for a year or two and we pick up the phone and it's like no time has passed, right? I would call that a very secure connection, right? This connection is enduring time and space and, you know, changes, right? Which is different than you're, we're consenting to become or be, or we already are attachment-based partners, Mm -hmm. right? Where I am saying, I am here to really show up to meet a fair amount or enough of your attachment needs, not all of them, because it's not possible in one relationship, you know, but I'm committing to being available, attuned, responsive to you, and that there's that reciprocation. Mm. Yeah. So especially when you live love, when you live a lifestyle where you have multiple partners, um, you've also said that before you can be polysecure and I'd like for you to explain that to us also what that means mm-hmm. but you said that before you can be polysecure with your partners uh, you first have to uh, decide whether you want to be an attachment figure for each other yeah. so what does that mean and also what does polysecure mean yeah so polysecure is is saying you know in the context of polyamory, having secure attachment with multiple lovers, partners, um, as well as having this secure attachment internally, mm-hmm. so that you can navigate uh, sh- the relationship structure of non-monogamy that is more complex, <laughs> right? It does have more complexity. It does have more ups and downs. And that comes with a lot of benefit and it comes with some challenges, right? So you need, we need that internal security to navigate more people basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what, you know, poly secure is, is referencing. And what was your question right before that? Um, actually how, uh, you decide oh, yeah, we, and also agree, make very clear, yeah. you agree to becoming an attachment figure for each other. Yeah. And so a lot of people, if they've already been together, they just acknowledge, oh yeah, we already are attachment relationships for each other. Um, but then they can explore, well, what do we need differently that maybe is even more securely that we're functioning in more of a secure way. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in non-monogamy, I think it's great to have that as a dialogue, as a conversation, not an assumption, mm-hmm. right? That, oh, you're just going to be showing up for me in a certain way instead of us both negotiating. How do we want to show up? What level of involvement and investment do we want in this connection right mm-hmm. and the beauty i think of non-monogamy is you don't have to have that with everyone mm-hmm. right there's it's just not possible or that's not what these this pairing or triad needs you know and we don't have to then get rid of the person mm-hmm. we can still have that connection or relationship but it doesn't have to be attachment based yes and as long as you're really clear about your needs and desires and express them to the other and you know, there's reciprocity uh, that can work out. And in case you do desire to be an attachment figure for each other, uh, you actually talk about six very specific strategies to help you move towards secure attachments in your multiple relationships. Can you tell us about these steps? Yeah, well, the steps are the hearts that we already spoke about. And then, you know, before that, I talk about sort of just what is a safe haven and what is a secure base? Yeah. Right. And so safe haven is 
you know, the person you can go to to receive support, to feel nourished, right? To let guard your let your guard down and show yourself, reveal yourself. You're received, you're loved, right? And it's exactly that the safe haven, right? And secure base is sort of the ways that we encourage our partners to actually turn away from us, go be big in the world, go take risks. And when we feel like we have someone to return to, we will actually take bigger risks, right? Um, When we know there's someone who will be there for us at home, so to speak, metaphorically or literally, right? Um, So that those two elements are really important. And, you know, in the book, I first go through that of what pick a partner and what do you need to have more of a safe havenness with them? What do you need to have more of that secure baseness? And also it doesn't have to all come from one person, Mm -hmm. right? That we can have partners that fulfill different aspects of those sort of two wings of attachment. Right. And what is so beautiful also about this concept, you know, speaking about the safe bases, to have somebody who just holds you in love and tells you, go be big, go be explore every aspect of yourself. Um, And then you can also bring that back to them and you can grow together. Uh, Now, of course, that takes a great deal of knowledge of the self and also a great deal of growth and maturity in a sense. Um, Something that often comes up when talking about consensual non-monogamy is jealousy. You also talk about jealousy in your book, and you say that sometimes what people call jealousy isn't actually jealousy. It is attachment primal panic. What is that? Yes. So (sighs) as infants, right? When we are too far away from our attachment figure, we will start to feel this panic because there's a truth of if you're too far away to protect me, I could die, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really a primal survival strategy. Or if we're crying or uncomfortable or we're afraid and there's no one there to pick us up and help us feel better, right? Or address whatever's going on, there's that panic again, I could die. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily go away for us as humans, as adults, right? We might cognitively know I'm okay, but there's still this primal attachment nervous system that can get activated when I'm used to having kind of constant access to my partner because of the nature of phones these days, right? And now suddenly they're on a date and I don't have access to them for several hours. People can sort of have this panic experience right? Even though they might know they're going to come back and I'm actually home and I'm okay. Right. But their body can go into a panic and, or just the feeling of disconnection, whether it's real or actual from our attachment figure, which as adults is most often our partners, um, that panic again can arise. So it gets mislabeled as jealousy, Oh, you're just having a jealousy meltdown, deal with your shit kind of attitude. And it's like, no, this is like an attachment experience that needs support, you know, and can be worked with. Mm-hmm. So how can you work on it yourself? And how can your partner yeah. help support you? What are some specific things we can yeah, do? Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of different things. So with your partner, it's those uh, transitions, right? What do you need before I go on a date? What kind of reassurances, what level of connection um, does somebody need to feel like they can say, okay, great, 
go. And this is usually in the earlier stages. I think down the road, these transitions in non-monogamy get much easier, you know, but there's usually like the first year that it can just be really hard, you know, um, sort of like crawling, walking to running, right? You just can't run right away. You'll keep falling. So these are the falls that people are going through just to put it in that context. Um, yeah. And then how do we reconnect when you come back? What do I need? What do you need? Right. And it's both ways because the person that's gone also might need space or they might need time or they might need reassurance. You know, there's all different things to process of sort of what are our pre and post we've been apart protocols, so to speak, you know, of connection. But then individually, it's really learning how to um, self-regulate and self-soothe. And most people haven't learned those skills and tools, period, (laughs) right? They don't know how to self-regulate and self-soothe and they turn outwardly to like other regulate, you help me feel better, or they turn to their phone or substance or, you know, distractions to regulate. So it becomes this opportunity of how do you self-soothe and regulate in a way that's intentional and actually effective, Mm-hmm. And I know that you're also, uh, you've learned you're a somatic practitioner, right? Mm-hmm. So can, can you share some, so if I'm in this mode, I have this attachment primal panic and I just feel like I'm literally close to a panic attack. I can't yeah. breathe. I have all the physical and also emotional signs of it. What is something that I can do in the moment to actually regulate my emotions and, and my reactions that would hopefully help me relatively quickly to at least see the light at the end of this panic time? Totally. Yeah. And so a lot of it, I go off of polyvagal theory of like, how do you downshift when you're in this sympathetic dominance in that moment, right? Of great breathing in a certain rhythm where your exhale is longer than your inhale is going to sort of calm you more into a parasympathetic state, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes it's literally like moving your body. So you're discharging, right? So that's a key word. Like I'm safely discharging this energy um, to get it sort of out of my body and moving. Um, there's even methods around using like chewing on ice or putting cold water on your face that helps sort of this hijack of the nervous system. Chewing on ice. Yeah. Yeah. So the cold, I think it's a, it's like a remnant from, it's a leftover from being um, uh, mammals in the ocean where when you're diving and your face would get cold first, it was an indication to conserve energy and to go into a parasympathetic state. Oh, fantastic. Cold water, put ice in your mouth, you know, um, cold water on your face, it can really quickly shift. And I've seen this work. I mean, it sounds too simple and ridiculous. And I've had people, you know, I give them, I always give people, here's five or seven things to try. Tell me what works and then we'll refine it next time. And someone's like, the ice, it just worked. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I have not heard. I mean, I've heard about cold therapy, of course, and I right, do cold, yeah, shower, so, cold immersions, but I've never heard about putting ice in your mouth to actually calm yourself down. It makes so much sense. Yes. Thank so you those are like biological things to do, yeah. right? With your body, with temperature, with breath is a huge one. But then there's other things we usually need to do, which I see as inner parts work. Mm-hmm. What part of you is going into panic, mm-hmm. right? This is usually also a leftover from trauma that's showing up, right? Of 
a history of, of actually being abandoned, right? Or of things that you went through that were violations, that were boundary ruptures, you know? And that these inner child parts are screaming, rightfully so, right? And we never usually learn to see, oh, that's a wounded part of me that needs love and attention and I can offer it, right? And when I cradle that part of me, my whole system, you know, relaxes in a certain way. So really also when we look at these issues or these these moments in our life where we may be experiencing something like that, instead of actually seeing it as a problem, to see it as an opportunity, see it as a possibility to to heal and grow, I think that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, Um, right. The problem is not that the problem is we get to adulthood very ill-equipped, right? We don't have the skills to regulate our nervous system. No one taught us how to process through our trauma. We have minimal, you know, uh, relationship skills. And that's actually what the problem is. You know, we're having a a pain, like growth discrepancy and we have to fill in the blanks. Yes. You think about all the things we learn in school that we never need again in life. Yeah. All the things we don't learn, like what you just mentioned, that they are so fundamental for living a fulfilled life. And then there's also, of course, the things that we learn that we need to unlearn, whether it's, you know, uh, cultural conditioning, ideological brainwashing, or unlearning damaging religious ideologies, even if you're not religious. And religion can be an absolutely wonderful thing. I don't mean to be disparaging of religion. However, if there is a sense, I believe, this is my belief, if there is a sense that's been instilled into you from birth, that there's something inherently wrong with you from the moment that you were born, for me personally, that's sounds like spiritual abuse yeah and I think it's very very difficult to recover from this and a lot of times we don't even see that that might be one of the root causes of our feeling bad about ourselves not enough horrible exactly. about ourselves. the shame that we feel about who we are yeah yes instead of loving who we are. And um, I think the first step is recognizing how these things may have formed certain narratives, false narratives and thought, you know, patterns in ourselves. And, you know, another thing is for me, you know, talking about the freedom to express yourself and the freedom to love how ever is best for you respectfully consensually and yeah. um, of course you know with love for the other or others that you encounter in my mind looking at world history it seems pretty clear that repressed societies are always the most violent societies <laughs> and i think we would benefit so much from whatever model it is that we choose for ourselves. You know, if I'm perfectly happy being monogamous and actually only having one single life partner all of my life, and I'm happy and secure in this, and at the same time can allow others to choose whatever version of love they want to live, my goodness, what a beautiful world we would live in. I know. I agree. 
(laughs) (laughs) And Jessica, there's something I would um, love to know from you. It's a question I like to ask all of my honored guests, and it's about the practices that have informed their life and their spiritual, mental, or physical growth. Is there something you would share with us? Yeah. Ooh, I I should have thought this one through. (laughs) Yeah, I think... um... Well, and I think I have, I don't remember if I talk about it in the book, but, you know, Buddhism had an important impact on me. We'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, absolutely. And there's such beautiful teachings in Buddhism, which I think is actually a philosophy, right? It's Uh, both a religion and a philosophy. Yeah, mm -hmm. it absolutely has religious (laughs) ways. Yeah. And so whoever would like to learn more about you, of course, can read your beautiful book, Polysecure, or they can reach out to you. Where can they find you, Jessica? Yeah, my website is jessicafern.com and people can just subscribe to my mailing list. And so when I have a new announcement of space open in my practice or a course I'm offering or a talk that I'm offering for free, they'll get notified of that. Yeah. Super. And I also mentioned all of that in the show notes for this episode. Jessica, thank you so very much for joining yeah. us and sharing your experience and wisdom with us. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, it's wonderful to speak with you. Thank you. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. <laughs>